Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I am with Jan Eric Jones, a professor of philosophy at Southern Virginia University. Professor Jones, thanks for being on the show. It's so great to be here with you, and thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, you're such a great guy. Uh, so to start us off, can you give us a brief history of yourself and what's gotten you to this point? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from California, and um, I guess from the time that I was very young, I had all kinds of questions about the nature of knowledge and uh, how it applied to scientific theories. And ever since then, I've just been pursuing that interest. I love it. I love it. So how, I mean, how did you get in? How did you start pursuing that? What, what were the first steps? Well, first, um, I remember when I was younger, I would ask my parents about this strange new theory I heard at school called the atomic theory of matter. <laughs> everything's made out of imperceptib imperceptibly small particles. And I thought, that is so crazy. How could that possibly be true? And they assured me that it was. And I started wondering, how do you get, how do you get uh, theories about nature and confirmation of those theories about nature uh, from experience and experimentation? And the more I learned about it, the more questions arose in my mind. And then I had a mission companion who was a philosophy student. And the two of us were talking to each other all the time because we were companions. Mm -hmm. We're about four months or so. So I realized that he was studying in college the same sorts of things that I was interested in, but I didn't realize you could study that in college. Huh. And so I decided at that time that I was going to go to college and I was going to study that. Got some inspiration from yeah. that mission companion. For those that don't know, um, and, and the, when you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you go... What's really common is going on a, on a two-year mission service, and in that service you have a mission companion where you're with them 24-7. Uh, so that's what, and, and I, I did one as well. So that's why when you say you're with them a lot, uh, you really are with them a lot. So I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you guys talked about so many different topics and, yeah. and, and so many different things. So, so what are some of the topics then that really sparked, like spark your interest? Well... One of the issues that I found fascinating when I was an undergraduate, I never was able to take a class on it, but I eventually ended up writing a master's thesis and a dissertation oh, cool. on it. And for me, the, the main issue was how is it that we get scientific theories of um, species? Okay. So scientific taxonomies. We organize the world into a, a wide array of kinds of things. And it seemed to make sense that we would organize the world into kinds. But the question is, does the world actually have those kinds in it naturally? Or do we create them when we organize things and start naming stuff? Huh. And that's an overly crude way of, of thinking about it. But so here's, here's kind of an example. We talk about 
electrons, protons, neutrons, and a variety of leptons. Okay. Quarks and muons and gluons and all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff, right? We, Lots of ons in there. We do. We talk about these sorts of things, and these are categories of objects, okay. categories of substances. And we have dark matter, and we have strings in string theory, and we have dark energy. And we, we've just got this way of categorizing things in theoretical physics. And then we get a kind of what's called ontological commitment to the existence of those things for a couple of reasons. One might be that we conduct some kinds of tests at CERN and find that there's a, a streak in the cloud chamber <laughs> that indicates to us that those kinds of things probably exist. Yeah, Something right. answering to our description of that kind of particle exists. Or we find that uh, our theories can't work without them and our theories are otherwise very well confirmed and so we take the existence of those things to be likely based on those hmm. on those theories that's one case in which this question of ontological commitment and categorization uh, and confirmation and uh, of a theoretical entity comes into play in science another case too occurs when we start thinking about um, the history of genetics. Okay. And this is a really fascinating history and it starts in the most unlikely of places. Where was that? I don't recall. It starts actually with Plato and Aristotle worrying about how do we explain generation and corruption. Huh. And there are there are a couple of, how do I put this? Uh, let's see, there are a couple of questions, a cluster of questions that come together on this issue. So, bananas behave like bananas. <laughs> they do. And every banana is just like every other banana. It could Very be, true. Could be raised I, in the Philippines or Costa Rica. Hey, some of the ones that are green versus yellow, and they're a little more yellow. Those are, those are my favorite bananas. <laughs> Excellent choice. <laughs> right, but the, it's not like bananas go to banana school to figure out how to behave bananally. They just They're just natural by nature, bananas. By nature they behave that way. And there's got to be some explanation for why the matter that makes up the banana behaves differently than the matter that makes up say a uh, an orange. And oranges and bananas have a lot in common, but they're not exactly alike. There are pretty clear differences between them. And so for Plato and Aristotle, this question about what causes oranges to behave in, and to exhibit the properties that they do, and bananas to behave the way that they do, and penguins, and people, and donkeys, and water, and stone, and gold, and bronze, and all these sorts of things. Of course, bronze is an alloy, right? But you get the idea that there are certain things that seem to behave the way they do by nature, not because of anything that we did. They just already seem to behave that way. So how do we explain this? If it's just the matter 
that causes all of these properties, then Plato and Aristotle thought then that there would be no way of explaining how these traits get passed on because banana seeds create more bananas and they behave the same way as the parent banana. <laughs> and the same thing goes. Always the same. <laughs> right. And every bit of gold behaves like every bit of gold throughout the world. And every bit of silver behaves like silver throughout the world. And silver and gold are not at all alike. There, there are some similarities, but there are lots of really big differences too. Okay. And so explaining similarities and differences um, by just appealing to the matter uh, may not do it. So you can dissolve silver in sulfuric acid, but you can't dissolve gold in sulfuric acid. Okay, I'm on to you. So what's the, what is the difference between silver and gold? How do we explain this difference? And what about passing on of heritable traits? A child can inherit traits from their parents, and what passes this on? How do we explain this? And why is it all humans are alike? Just like the bananas, all bananas are alike. All humans have the same human nature too. So there has to be something that explains this uniformity among diversity. You and I are diverse humans, but we have something very obvious in common. We are both human. <laughs> so what explains all of this? Well, Plato and Aristotle hypothesize a non-physical form. Okay. A, an eternal truth or a non-physical form that informs the matter on how to behave and governs it and gives it the distinctive characteristics that belong to its species. So the difference between a, a form, the difference between a banana and an orange is going to be in their form. They might have lots of similarities because the banana has a vegetative form and also has a living form and also has a um, banana form. The orange can have a vegetative and living form, but it also has a, a um, orange form. And so what differentiates the two is their species form. Their that, species form. Okay. But what makes them similar are the forms that they have in common. Okay. And humans have a rational soul, which is a non-physical soul that is a conscious thinking thing that uh, has a will and makes decisions for itself. And so humans have a soul that acts as a kind of species form for us and other animals have a different kind of soul. But humans um, are not that different from the other animals. So a chimpanzee has a form that makes it alive and has a form that makes it a mammal and has a form that makes it um, a chimpanzee and humans have a form that makes it alive and a form that makes it a mammal and we just have another form that makes us a human and so we might share a lot of similarities with other animals it's the difference that separates us and this difference is the essence of humanity the form of humanity the essence of humanity yeah well I love it so and I was thinking about something when you were bringing that up it's interesting how now we live in a time of, of so much science and there's so many scientific theories and so many things coming out yet 
you bring up Plato, Aristotle. When we study philosophy right now, we're studying philosophers that came up with these ideologies long before all these scientific theories and, and proven science that we now use. Uh, so one, it's brilliant that they were able to come up with these. It is brilliant, but this idea of genetics starts with trying to explain the forms. Yeah, exactly. Because what happened was, is a big debate erupted over Plato and Aristotle's theories, and people were asking, well, wait a minute, how does a non-physical form cause a banana to do anything? Uh -huh. How does a non-physical form cause gold to do anything or to have any properties at all? If it's non-physical, how does it affect the matter? In uh, basic wording, God. It yeah. had to be the answer for most people. Right. And a supernatural being. And yet, if you are one of these scientifically, philosophically-minded theologians, you still wonder, how did God impose that order on the matter? Huh. Because he must have had some way of doing it. And here's how the story of genetics comes from the story of forms. Okay. There are people like Francis Bacon in the 16th century who hypothesize the physical structures of matter create differences between kinds of matter. And he hypothesizes something that sounds a lot like basic building blocks of matter. Now, of course, he's not the first one to do this. The Epicureans had this idea, Democritus in the fifth century BC, right? He had these ideas of matter making up the fundamental building blocks of nature. But if every bit of matter, if every bit of matter is just like every other bit of matter, then it's hard to explain how you get some things to be living and some things to be inanimate stone or some things to be metals or some things to be mm -hmm. plants and some things to be animals. How do you explain all of this without appealing to non-physical forms for which there's no really clear explanation about how they could interact with the matter. So Francis Bacon starts hypothesizing something like molecules or just big structures and then made up out of little structures. And Robert Boyle takes this a step further and starts thinking about fundamental shapes among objects. So you might get the smallest particles and they might have maybe 10 different shapes. And depending on the orders and arrangements of those shapes, you could get different kinds of particles to create different kinds of organs, to create different kinds of organisms. Hmm. And all of that comes from just matter and structure. Yep. And Sounds familiar. matter and structure starts creating what Boyle calls atoms and, well, I mean, he gives us, a, a, he calls it elements, not atoms. But he, he's a corpuscularian. He believes that matter is made out of um, these fundamental particles, okay. but they could be still divisible into even further hmm. um, smaller parts. 
But we get something like an element in Boyle and then something like uh, a molecule in Boyle and then he starts hypothesizing ways that these molecules can become further organizations and then cells and things like that. And before long you've got organisms. And so thinking about structure of particles and then structure of organizations of particles and structure of organizations or organs within uh, with each other creates cells and then structures of cells can create all kinds of, of beings of or organisms and before long you've got an account of how living and non-living things are organized by just thinking about matter and its properties. But how do you pass on, how do, how do living beings pass on these traits? How do they? How do, yeah. <laughs> how do they? Well, the, the discussion in, in Mendelavian, uh, uh, you know, Gregor Mendel's form of thinking about genetics, has something to do with passing on structures and organizations. And that leads us to this idea of DNA. Booyah. And it's a, it's a long story. It's a complicated story. But it's ultimately a philosophical story about how do we explain the uniformity, the unity and diversity in nature? How do we explain the um, generation of offspring from parents and how they remain essentially the same kinds of things as their parents and, and uh, inherit traits? Huh. No, I like that a lot. That, yeah. that the roots of this of DNA came from philosophical thinking, saying, why are non-living things non-living? Why are living things living? Isn't that the root of philosophy at its core? Yes, and I, I will pick up on just how to go into the 20th century with this story. But in answer to your question, philosophy is the search for truth, the search for knowledge and understanding of the most fundamental kinds of questions. Yeah. Questions about what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of nature? Mm -hmm. So physics, theoretical physics is building theories about what is the nature of nature? Hmm. We have other questions about what is the nature of knowledge? We call that epistemology. Epistemology. That, that studies what is the nature of Yeah, what is the nature of knowledge? <laughs> what is the nature of morality? We call that ethics. Okay. Right? A ethics is answering, answering this big question. What is the nature of morality? What is the nature of, of um, beauty and art? Aesthetics is a study of the nature of beauty and art. These are all philosophical topics. Mm -hmm. There are questions about what is the nature of language and meaning how does a sentence have or a word have meaning mm. that's a, a semantic theory that we sometimes call philosophy of language mm. what is the nature of mind or consciousness and um, what is the nature of reality what is the nature of personhood these fit into a category called metaphysics they're fundamental metaphysics. questions about the nature of reality 
and um, they I hate it when I have these little brain interruptions. Little, so little mind parts. <laughs> yeah. But these questions about the nature of consciousness uh, in philosophy of mind and the nature of personhood in, in, uh, in metaphysics and the nature of causes and effect in metaphysics, these are just ways of thinking about fundamental questions, the big questions without which we really can't hope to answer the other questions. I don't, have a, I don't have an account of what science is and how to distinguish it from pseudoscience if I don't have an account of what knowledge is. Huh. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so where do science and philosophy diverge? Science and philosophy diverge because some philosophical theories can be tested empirically. Okay. And so we start creating tests for those. And if it's a question about the fundamental particles that make up the world, or what is the origin of the cosmos? We call it theoretical physics. Okay. And then in, uh, experimental physicists come up with ways of testing those philosophical theories that we call uh, the uh, physics theories. Always more tests to do, right? <laughs> Always more tests, yeah. And but there's there's a theoretical chemistry too. What is okay. the what is the nature of um, an atom, what is the nature of a molecule, and what's our theory about how these things come to be and what they do and what their properties are. Right, that's a philosophical theory, and then there are tests to confirm it. And the th same thing goes for biology, and even for economics and other uh, sciences and social sciences, they are ultimately predicated upon a philosophical theory that is an answer to a foundational question. Huh. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a phenomenal way to look at it because you, you know, we take it for granted we're in school, we're learning these things, we just sort of, whether you memorize it or, or, or immersed in it, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, ultimately those things do come from an overwhelming large question at its, at its origin. Right, if you're not asking a big fundamental question, you're not engaging that rational side of you and you're not able to understand how human history has become what it is. I mean, beavers make dams and they change their environment because they want to get food, they want to live securely and all that sort of stuff and they're clever animals. And humans, we will build dams too because <laughs> We have all kinds of uses for it. However, humans do this weird thing. We make universities. And universities are a human phenomenon. Yeah, they are. And they, <laughs> they occur because we want to pursue thoroughly big questions and big answers. And we want to understand and organize our world and make sense of it for ourselves and for each other. And that cannot ever be lost. It's part of what we are as humans. Yeah. It I will... love that analogy compared to the beaver dam. <laughs> well, we'll not compare it, but bring it up the beavers making the dams. And they're clever animals. They really are uh, smart and they, they get what they want. 
But there's something about the life of the mind, the intellectual side of humanity, that just doesn't go away. Huh. We create universities because we are intellectual beings in our nature. Yeah, special. We are special, yeah. So what, when we're looking at the nature, all the natures that we went over, yeah. ethics, um, logic, every, every, everything in that bunch. Right, logic, logic is the fundamental study of reasoning, good yeah. reasoning, and trying to figure out what's the difference between good reasoning and poor reasoning. And this question of the nature of rationality it's a big question. It affects economics and it affects philosophy and psychology. It is not a small problem and it has bleed over effects in politics and political theory. Yeah. So what are some of the most compelling arguments by philosophers, whether new or old, that, that, went up, that have been highly convincing to you and, and, and then to others when it comes to these subjects? Oh, that's a big question. I'm not sure. I know you can handle it. Well, I'm not sure I can do justice to it. But just because a question is being addressed with empirical means and experimentation doesn't mean that it's not trying to answer a fundamentally philosophical question. These questions about what is dark matter and what is dark energy and these questions about the Higgs boson as a force carrier, right? These that explain mass. These questions about um, string theory and what is the ultimate constitution of material reality as we know it. These are philosophical questions and they have been very convincing for a lot of people and they've created the scientific worldview that we have today. But it is a philosophical enterprise. You're creating a theory mm -hmm. and you're creating arguments on behalf of that theory. And experiments are just arguments. That's what they are. Mm, yeah. They're intended to establish the plausibility of the thesis. So experimental philosophy, if you want to call it, that's what it is being thought of these days. And in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century is called natural philosophy. Some of those have been really convincing. I think you'll find a lot of people these days who aren't bothered by the atomic theory of matter. Uh -huh. that, wasn't, that wasn't you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just was curious about it when it was first presented to me. I thought, wow, how could this be? And then yeah. how could you know that it's right? Mm -hmm. And the questions about how do we adjudicate between rival theories was a really big question for me. I, I am still interested in that. We also have, uh, I think, some other successes in philosophy as well. I think Aristotle did a really fine job of telling us about the right way to live. What is a good way to live? What is a happy or flourishing life? Hmm. If you live a life trying to develop the virtues, you do live a good life. And I think, I think that uh, when it comes to the nature of knowledge, there are some really good answers out there about, say, perceptual knowledge. I think that epistemological externalism 
as defended by my teacher, um, William Alston, is a really accurate account of the way to think about knowledge in general, or perceptual, sorry, perceptual knowledge in, in what, what exactly is, is that account? I'm unfamiliar. So, externalism, when it comes to theory of knowledge, is an account of the way that the mind acquires information about the external world, and it's a causal story. There are physical objects, and there are physical processes in the physical world that interact with our sense organs that are the causes of other events that happen in the brain that cause conscious states that we call perceptions. Okay. And it's a cause and effect story about, about the world. And philosophical or epistemological externalism basically says that knowing or having knowledge of external facts or perceptual knowledge of external states of affairs is having perceptual states that are under the effective control of reliable processes and the external facts that make those perceptual or beliefs about those perceptual states true and that are causally responsible to a large degree for the existence of those perceptual states in the first place. Huh. And I think just a very simple way of stating it, that's the accurate way of thinking about perception. And we often tell our students in introductory philosophy courses that knowledge is justified true belief. Yeah, that's cemented in my head. <laughs> right. From my freshman philosophy class. But there are some real problems with that. Okay, okay. Because you can have, as William Alston argues, you can have beliefs that are not justified by means of an argument or they're not justified by means of premises or information that you are aware of. Okay. And, I think I know where you're going with this. And so what he says is that when we think about perceptual knowledge, perceptual knowledge is justified by the processes that produced it. Okay. And so I think he's right about that. Now, other kinds of knowledge, like scientific knowledge or inferential knowledge, that requires a different process altogether. And so calling that kind of knowledge justified true belief, I think would be largely correct. Huh. But in the case of perception, I don't think it is. And I think it's pretty clearly not enough. I, I really side with that sort of form of knowledge, external form. Mm -hmm. in the, is, it, is it safe to say that it's trusting in the external experiences and external things we account for and witness and, and see. Well, I don't know. Really if trusting in those perceptions being real is that? It's a good question. I'm I'm not sure how to cash out the concept of trust here, but let me try to do justice to the question that you've asked. Okay. Part of it is just this: there is a there's a philosophical question, and that is. What is perceptual knowledge? What constitutes perceptual knowledge? And the answer that externalists are giving is that 
it's knowledge is the end product of a whole bunch of cause and effect relationships that go on inside of the physical world, which includes your brain and your sense organs, and the stuff outside of your brain and your sense organs would be relevant effect. too. Okay. Right? And so if that is the proper account of knowledge, then, and this is a hypothetical statement, right? If then. If then. Right? If that's the proper account of knowledge, then if there are physical objects interacting um, with our sense organs or there are light, you know, photons bouncing off of external world objects and interacting with our sense organs in the right way, and the brain processes that input in a reliable way, that is a way that captures and tracks the facts as they are, at least to some degree, as, as much as possible given <laughs> the, the limits of the sense organs and the limits of the human mind, okay. then what you have as an end product of that is perception or perceptual knowledge, information about the world. And then the issue of skepticism raises its head, and the issue of skepticism, as you were indicating, is how much do we trust the end product as an accurate description of the original causal story. That's when things start to get complex. <laughs> that's, when, that's when things get really complex. And Because there's a philosopher, uh, Berkeley is the philosopher that says everything's perception. Nothing you're seeing is... Well, there's no, phys there's no physical reality. Everything is either a mind or... Uh, an idea in a mind. Okay. And he's drawn to that position just because of the insurmountable problems of explaining how do we get physical objects interacting with our physical body and how do we get our physical body interacting with a non-physical soul and how does all of that result in conscious perception? So there are a bunch of assumptions that go into the problem as Barclay conceives of it. One of them is that there are physical external objects. Two is that there's a physical body. And three, that there's a non-physical soul. And it's the non-physical soul that is the perceiver mm -hmm. that has the conscious states. And set up in this way, this problem that we talked about with Plato and Aristotle where how do you explain how a non-physical form interacts with a physical object to create bananas or oranges? Uh -huh. That was seen as a really big insurmountable problem because physical and non-physical stuff interacting seems inconceivable to us. Huh. Okay. Well, the same sort of problem arises in this case of perception as Barclay's understanding it. If we have a non-physical soul interacting with a physical body, and that physical body is somehow interacting with external physical objects, and by some utter miracle we've got this conscious representation in our minds, in our non-physical minds, of external physical tables and chairs and people's bodies and all that sort of stuff, if we've got that as the end product, this conscious state, and that conscious state is somehow occurring in a non-physical mind, then how do you bridge the gap between a physical mind, I'm sorry, a non-physical mind and a physical body 
interacting with each other. Huh. And how do you get a non-physical representation of a physical reality? And, and that, is that what led Berkeley to correct. He, believe the way he believes? <laughs> he, he thought it was inconceivable that we could even think of a non-physical, sorry, that we could even think of an external physical world because that's all trapped behind this veil of perception. All we ever interact with are ideas. My perceptions of you are just ideas in my mind. Everything I smell, everything I feel, everything I taste, everything I touch, everything I hear, everything I, I uh, have ideas of are in my mind. That's okay. all I ever interact with are ideas in my mind. And so this question comes up, how do we bridge the gap between what's consciously presenting itself to us in our mind and anything that goes on in the outside world and that's a problem because it's not like I can rip off my sensory apparatus and check to see how the world is independently of my perceptions of it. There's no way I can conceive of a process or a test that I could run that would check to see how the world is in relation to the idea I have of it. It's just something we have to accept. That. <laughs> and so you use this word trust. Yeah. Do we trust our perceptual apparatus? I like, I, I like to say that I trust my perceptual <laughs> apparatus. You do. It makes, it makes life a little uh, easier when I'm by myself and, and thinking about the world around me. <laughs> you do. But Bertrand Russell in The Problems of Philosophy points out that, and he's echoing largely David Hume on this point, we don't trust our perceptual apparatus and our minds because somebody gave us an argument for the reliability. Somebody, it's not like your mother sat you down on her knee and said, well, Jacob, it's time I started talking to you about skepticism <laughs> and uh, perception of the external reality. So premise one, right? I mean, that's not likely how it happened when you were growing up. What you, didn't, happened, you didn't do that for your children? No, no, I <laughs> didn't want to lose my parenting license. But the... The process is a really natural one. Human nature takes over. Babies aren't coming up with arguments. Babies are just um, interacting with a world that they take to be real. Yeah. They assume that there is an external physical reality and that their perceptions of it match that reality. And so we don't, we don't start off as skeptics. We start off as naive realists. Huh. We start off taking everything that nature throws at us at face value. It's huh. not until we start getting older and people start saying, did you know that the vast majority of physical objects are itty bitty particles moving rapidly in strange structures and they're bonded with each other by some kind of uh, covalent or hydrogen or <laughs> you know, some sort of bond some kind of bond right and you uh, ionic bond or what, whatever it is that 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 is going on and that they're so small you can't even see them and that starts rocking your world and you start investigating <laughs> nature You're like whoa and the minute you start investigating the fundamental nature of reality, this philosophical question about what is the world made out of, 
this question of how reliable are our senses comes immediately to the fore and it's in an unavoidable way. Amazing. The minute we start reasoning about our experiences, we start having to justify them. I, I think it's amazing how we develop, you brought up being a babies and being, you know, naive realists. It's amazing mm -hmm. that we develop from little babies into intelligent adults that then begin questioning and, and coming up with conclusions and answers. And we all do it. We all we, do it. Yeah. Maybe not on the same topics, but we all, <laughs> we all become philosophers interested in the ultimate questions, the big questions of some particular topic. And whether we recognize it as a philosophical question or not is, is one thing, but we do have them. Not everybody recognizes that. Yeah. So one, I think, I think we we really covered a lot of it well on the side of, of science and how it relates to science, and then a lot of those topics. How how then do we tie philosophy into religion? Uh, because from some of the studies I've done and what I remember from your class, uh, which I forgot to mention, took his class, wonderful class. Um, but a lot of these uh, philosophical arguments and, and, and ideas come about from, from God or, or God doing this or, or the world around us is being controlled by an external being. So how do we tie in religion into philosophy? And specifically, how does, how does, how does your philosophical views affect your religious beliefs? Okay, yeah, there are a lot of really good questions there. And... I guess one way to think about it is philosophy is born in wonder. We wonder about things. Mm -hmm. And we wonder if we can't find a pattern in nature or reality that is predictable and allows us to survive and to make the most of the resources available to us. And so humans are great pattern recognition machines. And we reason pretty well about patterns and that kind of thing. And so humans engage in philosophical inquiry pretty much by nature and sometimes just out of necessity. The question of how does religion and philosophy, how do they come about or how do they, I don't know the full psychological or human developmental story about how how um, religion comes into being, or the uh -huh. historical question about how it comes into being. What I can speak in an informed way on is just the way I see these two things as going together. So, for example, if you have an account of reality that includes a deity or a collection of deities, then you have a ready-made answer for some ultimate questions. Why does something exist rather than nothing? Well, maybe a god has always existed and created it or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. there, you, you hear questions like that answered by theists in that way. And if you have a question about what is morality, what is the right way to behave, then if you have a theological commitment, then maybe 
you have a ready-made answer to that question too. I mean, there, so to some extent, if you have theistic beliefs, then it's very tempting to impose those theistic beliefs onto your answers to your theological, or sorry, your philosophical questions. Mm -hmm. It's a very natural combination. And if you are a philosopher, you do have a very natural way of thinking about theistic questions too, questions about God and the reality of God, the nature of God, the way God interacts with the world. So both of these can be seen as very naturally fitting with each other in the minds of people who are predisposed to these kinds of questions. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Okay. But your questions were building, and so the next series of questions you asked... You hit it on the, you hit it on the head, by the way. And now, now, I, now I'm curious as to how you have gone about that, sort of where your religious views tie into... Yeah, so philosoph I'm... Philosophical views. I'm a theist. I'm a theist and a Christian. Okay. So I believe, I believe in God, and uh, I believe not just in a God, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Okay. And so, let me talk a little bit about that. The typical setup for this kind of conversation goes something like this, and I'm not alone on this. There, uh -huh. are, there are lots of famous... 21st century and 20th century philosophers who are theists as well. I'm not alone in this. We're not the majority, but we are a very, <laughs> very large minority. You answered my next question. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but the, the history of philosophy is full of also religious people who are great philosophers. But the, the setup usually goes something like this. Either you believe in God on the basis of a, on a rational basis, you've got a proof or an inductive argument for the existence of God, or you believe in God on the basis of no evidence and it's just faith. And that's the dichotomy that's usually set up. Mm -hmm. And some people try to use this as a way of saying that there are rational ways to form beliefs, and it's by means of the rational processes of logic and deductive logic and inductive logic, and experience and perception, and reasoning based on experience and perception, right? These are the rational ways of doing it. And then there are the irrational ways of doing it, and that is believing in fairy tales and that sort of thing or accepting things on the basis of faith in the absence or maybe even in the presence of, in the absence of evidence or in the presence of countervailing evidence. And that would be irrational. Mm -hmm. And that's a really oversimplified way of setting it up, but I just wanted to set it up in a way that yeah. would sound familiar to just about everybody. Okay. I don't think that's the right way to set up the contrast though because I'm not sure that it describes accurately the ways of knowing. Okay. And so let me try to explain that just a little bit, okay? Yeah. 
My experience with the external physical world is the result of a conscious being interacting with what I take to be external physical objects and on the basis of the experiences that I have and um, even some reasoning that I've engaged in since my naive realist days. So I've, agreeing with uh, William Alston, was that his correct name? <laughs> yeah, I do agree with, with William Alston on externalism and perception. But I think that when it comes down to it, I also agree that there are external physical objects. And I've got reasons for that. And some of them are just uh, purely philosophical reasons. And they connect to some of my other reasons, which are just experiential. Mm -hmm. I've got I've got a ton of experience that seems to indicate to me the existence of external physical objects. Mm. And given what I've experienced, I would take it to be less rational to deny the existence of those things than it would be for me to affirm them. Mm. Now, I know that I can't give a non-circular argument for the uh, inductive processes that I use to come to these conclusions. I know that. Yes. And I know that deductive arguments aren't going to establish the, the existence of anything. Uh -huh. So I'm very well aware of the limits of rationality, but knowing those limits also frees me from a certain kind of dogmatism about these sorts of things. I know that a rational person can have reasons for saying that my evidence isn't enough to secure certainty. You can't be certain that their external physical objects are the way, or exist at all, or are the way you think they are. I acknowledge that. And I'm happy to acknowledge that because it's probably very likely that the external physical world isn't like the way it appears to me to be, especially if anything like our fundamental physics is right. Maybe the <laughs> ultimate reality is just poorly represented in our perceptions, and that's maybe, okay. Maybe so. But at least some of it might be true. Yeah. And I'm willing to acknowledge that that hypothetical statement, if there are external physical objects and the processes that produce my perceptions of them are reliable, then I have knowledge of them. Huh. And I'm willing to say that, that that's, uh, that's a uh, true statement, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. hypothetical statement. It's hard to, hard to deny that. But on the other hand, I also think I've got a bunch of evidence for the truth of the antecedent of that hypothetical statement. I think that there's a lot of evidence that there are external physical objects. And so I'm willing to say that I have a lot of evidence that I have knowledge of those external physical objects. But I don't have certainty, and I'm okay living without certainty. I don't think that certainty is required for knowledge. Could I be wrong about things? Yes. Does the fact that I could be wrong about it mean I don't have knowledge? No. Huh. And there are parallel cases here for my religious knowledge. So, I follow Alston on this too. Right? The way Alston describes it is that uh, what we take to be religious experience is also a kind of perception. I don't believe in God because somebody gave me an argument. I don't think that any of the inductive or deductive arguments for the existence of God are persuasive. I think that they're ultimately fallacious. 
but I don't believe in the existence of God on the basis of any of those arguments. Because if I did, then the fallacies in those arguments would really undermine my justification for that belief. But I believe in God on the basis of a relationship that I have with him. And that relationship is one of communication. Okay. And, and I do experience the grace of Christ. And I have felt it very clearly. And I have had some very clear communication by means of the Holy Spirit. And I have that with me constantly. And so I am aware of God on a regular basis. And so I take it that my relationship with God is justified by all of those. Well, my knowledge, my beliefs in the existence of God are justified by the same kinds of experiences that I have when I uh, interact with other human beings. The only difference is, well, maybe not the only, the biggest difference is that my interactions with other human beings is mediated by my eyes and my visual perceptual apparatus in my brain. But I don't take that to be a defect in the relationship that I have with God. Just because I'm not interacting with them with my eyes doesn't mean that I'm not interacting with him directly. In a different way? Yeah. Huh. And so William Alston has this argument where he just says that religious experiences are structurally identical to perceptual experiences. There's an object of perception, in this case, the Holy Spirit, right? And then there's a perception, in this case, some kind of information that is conveyed to me. Information, a feeling. Uh, yeah, well, when, like we a, talk about, when we talk about feelings, we have to be very clear. That, very clear, okay. That sometimes I have feelings of just you know, love or frustration or, you know, maybe I have moods, I'm not feeling well Uh or I'm not feeling chipper or anything like that. Those kinds of feelings I think are different from the other sense of feelings that we sometimes use in our religious vocabulary just because our religious vocabulary is not... Tends to get bundled together. (laughs) It's not fine-grained enough. Yeah, Yeah. it tends to get bundled together with, with other kinds of vocabulary. And so when I'm experiencing the Holy Spirit, I might say I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. But felt there sounds analogous to uh, an emotion. And emotions are non-rational, and that would be a bad justification for a truth claim. But if instead of being an emotion that's just something inside of me, if it's an interaction that I'm having with another being and it's conveying information in the only way that that being does in a way that's distinctive of that being and I understand that being and we've had all kinds of conversations and our mode of communication is familiar to me and anybody with a relationship with God will tell you that that's what it's like yeah then um, I guess the right way to put it is that is that it's a it's a it's a perception mm-hmm. where 
the content of that perception has, is about something. It's about a being and it's about information that that being is conveying to you. Uh-huh. Just like when I'm having a conversation with you and you say, you have a funny looking shirt on. I have a perception <laughs> and I also have some content to that perception that makes sense to me. And so there's this communication of perception. Hey, of, you don't have to make fun of me for wearing a Michigan shirt today, the day after. I am not making fun of you. days after a really hard loss. <laughs> Actually, William Alston was a professor at Michigan for a while. And so I, I accept it as a good school. <laughs> Go blue. Hopefully we can beat Ohio State someday. <laughs> and it has a, has a great PhD program in philosophy. So oh, awesome. Michigan, Michigan is good. I love it. But when I think when I think then about religious knowledge, I think about religious knowledge as perceptual knowledge. I know God through a kind of religious perception. Huh. I hypothesize, just like others before me, that the perceptions that I'm having of the Holy Spirit are not through the eyes or through the ears or anything like that. So you know the, the medievals hypothesized this sensus divinitatis, which is this fifth sorry, the sixth sense that is, I'm just learning how to count, right? It's a sixth sense that is the sense that connects the, uh, that is sensitive to the divine, that is sensitive to God. Just like the eyes are sensitive to light, the ears are sensitive to compression waves, and the, the uh, tactile, uh, the peripheral nerves are, are sensitive to uh, pressure and temperature and, and, you know, pain and things like that. If, uh, not sure that pain is the right word to use there. But anyway, you get these uh, sense modalities that are sensitive to certain kinds of stimuli. Well, the, the, the divine sense is sensitive to God. And I take it that the spirit ha- contains this sense modality, just like my body has eyes. And I think that's probably the way I would, I would describe it. Hmm. So... We ranged over a lot of things. Yeah, no, that was, that was impressive. But when you think about the, the origin of the question, so is, is God the subject of philosophical inquiry? Oftentimes, yes, that is the case. There are people who have theological questions that use philosophical tools to uncover truths about God. There are also... Um, people who have questions about whether God exists, right? They use philosophical tools to do that sort of thing. It's not like you can use scientific tools to do this. I mean, you wouldn't hop into a spaceship and go looking for God, right? That would be... Ironic. (laughs) It would be odd. Yes. But, um, you know, there, there are... There is an overlap for people who are philosophically minded questions about theology do come up and people who are theologically minded questions about philosophy do come up so they do come up quite naturally they're not antithetical to each other but we do have to be careful that we don't wed them too tightly with each other either Um, for the simple reason that it's very easy to start believing that the god that i describe in my philosophical accounts is the correct god and we just don't have um, enough of an experience with God to do that, I think. Okay. 
I think I was saying there. So your God think, isn't different than my God, and then I no, my I, God isn't different than the God guys God down the street. That sort of idea. Well, I guess I guess what I would put is, is uh, I'm completely comfortable with the claim that there are truths about God that I don't have. And there are, Some people would really struggle with that. That there are facts about his nature that I don't know. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that because I, the God that I've experienced personally is, is the one that I have, I have experienced. I've experienced a couple of things in that, that, that this is a God full of love and is anxious to give me information and is anxious to... Um, have me participate in a conversation and um, I have received grace and forgiveness of sin and I have received chastisement and instruction when I had acted wrongly and so I do understand that this God is the one that I'm interacting with and I don't know everything about him but I do know some very clear things about him and there are other people who have different interactions with God, and they know things about God that maybe I don't. Yeah. So I'm not willing to insist that I have all knowledge of God, but I do insist that I do have some. I like that. It's, 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 I think that's really smart. I guess I, I, I do know people that struggle to express that humility with their with their faith uh, in God, uh, but you that was an incredible job explaining that super fast before we finish up because we've covered a lot. It's been amazing. I have two quick fire questions, uh, and the first is the free will argument. And the reason why I ask is, growing up, I had the view, or at least was exposed to the view of the free will argument as one side of it. God is directs everything yeah so there is no free will because god is running everything with his hands versus <laughs> that was just really casual language no no i i like it um versus an idea of you do have free will um that basically god gave you agency you have free will to do whatever you want with that agency yeah. uh and i'm sure there's arguments that go against that with oh since God's real at all. There must not be free will. Anyways, now it's been flipped on me. Recently, I was exposed to the argument of there not being free will from a non, from an atheist point of view. Yeah. That there isn't free will because either you're born into a certain situation that you have no control over. There's so much, so many things you don't have any control over that you don't have free will in anything. So what is your view of, of free will and that's a really great question. And so can, let me just set it up following the, uh, the distinctions that you put into place yeah. here. There are a couple of routes to what we will call determinism. Determin determinism is the view that we don't act freely. We don't have freedom. Now, what is freedom? Well, freedom is sometimes defined as being able to Act according to your will in such a way that what you did was under the control of your will and you could have done something else. 
So these are the kind of the components of the definition of what we might think of as a free will or voluntary action, where I willed the action and I performed the action and I could have done something else. And a lot of people say, well, that's what we mean by freedom because if you couldn't have done something else, then you really weren't free. <laughs> and that's, a, I guess, relatively plausible way of defining it. I don't think it's the ultimately helpful way to, to think about it, um, but that's just one way to, to define it. And there are two routes, basically, to deny that we have that kind of freedom. One way is to say that if God created the universe and everything in it from nothingness, ex nihilo, knowing exactly before he created it what was going to occur in that universe because it was already understood by him as occurring that way, then once he created the universe, and it was finished at the same time as it started, right? Because the, the, one of the traditional ways of thinking about creation ex nihilo is just to say that the entirety of the universe at once is created and finished. So at the moment of creation, it's ended. And so everything that happens in that universe happens from the point of view of God right, subspecia eternitatis, from the point of view of eternity, it's all simultaneous with each other. And so your 90th birthday is going on right now. And so is the extinction of the dinosaurs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so from the point of view of eternity, all of that is happening all at once. So that would lead someone to believe there isn't free will. So the question is, is under those conditions, how can I do anything other than what I do if this universe was finished before I even make any choices. Interesting to think about. <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is what leads some theologians, and here you might think of Calvinists in particular, but some, okay. some theologians to deny the existence of free will in the sense that we could have done something else because it seems inconceivable under those conditions that we could have. In order for us to do something other than what we do in this universe, God should have, or would have had to create a different universe where we actually did that. In this one, which is already done, <laughs> yeah. all of the facts about your 90th birthday are already settled. It's just once we hit that point in time. What do you have for breakfast that day? What are you going to wear? Who are you going to spend it with? All right, that's, and that's, that's already done. And that's what away from the, that we don't have free will is like the little things... Yeah, I, in my point of perception, I think it makes a lot of sense that I would have free will because all these little things lead to other things happening. Well, if, but I do understand that 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 argument. Yeah. So if if uh, God creates the entirety of the universe from nothing, and already knew what was going to be contained in that universe, then it seems inconceivable that we could be free. Yeah. So why should we think that this particular deity knows? everything that the universe is going to contain? Well, one of the answers is that he's all-knowing. If he's all-knowing, then he knows not only what is real, but everything that's possible. Yeah. And so, of course, he would know what the universe contains. And then how would a, how would a being rationally choose 
which universe to create, which possible universe to create, if that being didn't already have some sense of what was in it. And in this case, a complete sense of what was in it. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to choose one over the other. And if God is a rational being, then he would have to have a rational basis for making that choice. And so there are all kinds of theological pressures for thinking that the universe created ex nihilo, contains everything in it, and therefore determinism has to be true. So that's one form of determinism. We might call it theological determinism. Okay. The other form of determinism is called causal determinism. And causal determinism is the view that Every event in nature is caused by the preceding events and the laws of nature. Every choice that we make is a mental event, it's an event in the mind. And so every choice that we make is caused by preceding mental events. Okay. And if every preceding mental event is the result of, if every mental event is the result of things going on inside of the brain, and those are governed by the laws of nature, and the laws of nature are deterministic, then it follows that every action that we undertake is governed by the laws of nature. And if the laws of nature cannot be violated, then it seems like we can't do anything other than what we in fact do. It means that we cannot choose anything other than we in fact choose. And so our actions and our choices seem to be governed by the laws of nature. And if they are deterministic, then determinism is true. We do not act freely. We couldn't do anything else. And some people try to get out of causal determinism by hypothesizing randomness in, nat in nature. Well, if there's randomness in nature, like Michio Kaku tries this on his Big Think video where he okay. says, where he says there are random events, according to quantum mechanics, there are random events in nature, and if there are random events in nature, then not everything follows from a deterministic set of preceding events in the laws of nature. And so he rightly concludes that determinism, causal determinism is false, but he wrongly concludes that this means that humans act freely. Because if our actions are the result of random events in the brain, then we weren't in control of them, and so they're not our actions. So they can't, oh. be, they can't be our free actions if they're not even our actions, if they're just random events. So causal determinism might be falsified by the quantum mechanics account of random events in nature, but it doesn't mean that we now act freely. So that those are certain problems involved in causal determinism. So what are, what are my views on these two kinds of determinism? Well, I guess the, the first one, theological determinism, is I don't think that God created ex nihilo. Okay. And that distinguishes me from a whole host of other Christians, but Correct me if I'm wrong here. The Bible that would probably attack you. <laughs> the, the Bible doesn't say that God created the universe from nothing. I'm, I'm 
not going to Bible bash you right now. No, <laughs> but it doesn't. I, 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 I don't think it does. So it, I, it, I've if read I all did, of it. I wouldn't even try. No. <laughs> I've read all of it multiple times. No place does it ever say that God created everything from nothing. And in fact, it does seem very clearly to say that humans will be rewarded and punished by a just God for what we do. Well, hmm, if God is just, and justice is anything like what I think it is, and I may be wrong about that, but if justice is anything like what I think it is, that we get what we deserve, (laughs) or that God is ultimately fair, then it means that we can't be punished for things over which we had no control. Which makes a great argument for having free will. It seems like it, yeah. I mean, there's wiggle room there. But I won't go through that. <laughs> but what I will say, too, is that I don't think the definition of free action is informative. To say that somebody acts freely means that they willed the action and they were able to do the action and they could have done something else. I think that's a description of a free action, but I don't think it's a definition. Just like I can describe a car without giving you a definition of what it is to be a car. I can describe a free action this way, but I can't give you a definition of what it is to be a free action that way. I'm inclined to think that a whole different set of vocabulary and a whole different metaphysic is appropriate here. I don't think of free actions. I think of actions of agents. I think an agent is a physical person. I might think of it as a physical soul, right? Because it's not identical to the brain. Here, I think Roderick Chisholm really has a lot right about this. When Chisholm talks about the nature of the person and the nature of agency, the 20th century American philosopher by the name of Roderick Chisholm talks about- He's got a solid name. Yes, he does. It is that name than which none more Scottish could be conceived. (laughs) But Chisholm has this way of thinking about the soul as a physical thing. I don't see any reason why it can't be physical. The the, um, problem of a non-physical and a a non-physical body and a physical, and sorry, a physical body and a non-physical soul seems to go away if the soul is a physical thing. I've got no problem with that. I think that would be a really interesting solution to this problem. Princess Elizabeth proposes this as a solution to Descartes' dualism. John Locke and Thomas Hobbes proposed this as solutions to the same problem. It's got a long tradition. I'm pretty sure that the history of Jewish theology does not say or Christian theology at the, in the, the early Christian world doesn't say that the soul has to be non-physical. So I don't really see how Christianity has to be committed to a non-physical soul. It's one option. In my mind, it's not the best one. But if you have a, a hypothesis of a physical soul that is an agent, and an agent has this source of action internally. They are, they, have, they are the internal source of motion. 
and then an agent that acts is going to do what it wants and it could do something else if it, if it wanted to do that. And so as long as the agent is the origin of that action and as long as the event in my brain or my body is agent caused, is caused by the agent, then I think of that action as voluntary and as free and exercise of my agency. And I don't think that we have to get into the weeds about whether it could have been otherwise. Yeah. Other than the fact that if the agent had been so inclined, it would have acted otherwise. And so I think that these souls, these agents, are physical and they exist and they interact with bodies and they make choices and they could have made other choices and as long as the, they are the origin of their action. I like that. <laughs> then they are, they are free and responsible for what they do. There's responsibility involved there. Right, because they are also rational beings. They know what they're doing. They yeah. choose it. So I guess that's, that's the way I would put it. And yeah. so I think that, that uh, the creation ex nihilo story is non-biblical and not necessary. And I reject it. And that goes a fair distance to getting rid of this problem of theological determinism. But there are, all, there are other ways that, that um, this, could be, this theme could be developed. But in my own theological tradition, we have a set of scriptures called the Book of Mormon, which was written by a whole bunch of ancient prophets and compiled by a prophet by the name of Mormon. And in Second Nephi, he talks about two kinds of matter. And he's trying to explain how humans are responsible for their actions. And he just says there are two kinds of matter. There is matter that acts, an agent, okay. and there is matter that is acted upon. Just like we talked about earlier. <laughs> Element, right? There's, there, there, there are agents and there are elements. Human versus the orange. And in the, and in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about Doctrine and Covenants one, section 131, just says that the spirit is physical, it's material. Huh. And it's not the same kind of matter that the desk is made out of. It's not the same kind of matter that the brain is made out of. And Roderick Chisholm actually hypothesizes it this way independently. Right? He just says that the, the agent, the person, is, not a is, is a physical thing, but is not made out of the same side of kind of stuff that the matter is. And I think he might be hypothesizing that it occupies physical but different dimensions than the ordinary four that we're accustomed to. But, um, you know, if something like that is the case, that might actually go a fair distance to explaining that uh, mind-body interaction and yeah. what it is to be an agent and responsible for your actions. And the other issue here, so these, but these are just my, and I'm totally comfortable with the fact that there are lots of philosophical problems with these views and I'm very comfortable with the fact that I can't be absolutely certain about everything. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking about them in terms of what I do understand. That's, that's and then, magnificent. And I think 
I think uh, Bertrand Russell said it best in The Problems of Philosophy when we turn our attention to causal determinism. I think he said it best when he just said, we don't understand enough about causation That's a good point. to determine that causal determinism has to be true as we describe it. He says that the notion of causation that passes muster in most scientific and philosophical discussions is like the royal family. It is erroneously, per, sorry, it is erroneously per, believed to do no harm. <laughs> in other words, we don't understand causation well enough, the concept of causation well enough to determine whether there, the kinds of causation that we have inserted into this argument do the trick and secure us causal determinism. Yeah. On the other hand, I guess another way of thinking about it is that uh, if agent causation is the route that we're going, we can hypothesize different kinds of causations. Just as contemporary physics thinks that the kinds of causes and effects that you get in the macro physical world are different from the micro, submicroscopic atomic world. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are different kinds of cause and effect relationships that go on in the agent world. <laughs> maybe the kind of substance that you're dealing with determines the kinds of actions that can be performed. Yeah. And yeah. so I don't, I don't see that this view of a physical agent would automatically fall into the causal determinism problem. I love it. I love it. Well, holy cow. I've never heard that explained so well. So thank you. And it doesn't shock me with, with your brilliance and, and your ability. To well, I don't think it was explained well, you know, as a first take. Really? Yeah, I would, I would go back and edit <laughs> all of it. No, that was wonderful. I, so many of those things I've, I've tried to give arguments for before mm -hmm. and have struggled to articulate it to even like a, a tenth of a percent as well you did. So, well, you're very kind. Yeah, thank you so much, John Eric. That was so great talking. I felt like I learned a lot. I feel like we have a, everyone that listens to this will be able to take multiple things away. So, thank you so much. Jacob, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you about some of my favorite things to discuss. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and anyone who's interested in learning more about John Eric's work, give him a Google search, and there's a lot to be seen. He's done a lot of work on, on multiple philosophers. So, Thanks again. Thank you.